Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, two caveats about this episode. First, we mentioned the L word, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was an iconic queer TV show that aired from 2004 to 2009. Second, the topic of suicidal thoughts and behaviors comes up. So if that's something you aren't comfortable listening to, you might want to skip this episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health and or suicidal thoughts, please reach out for support. You can text hello to 741-741, or you can call 1-800-273-8255. Both of these options are available 24-7. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know we all respond differently to death, loss, and grief. How we think about it, how we feel about it, and how we act are unique to us and to the relationship we had with the person who died. Some of us cry, some of us rant, some of us withdraw, some of us distract, some of us avoid the topic altogether, and some of us turn to seeking as much information as we can. And most of us do all of these, just at different points. Caitlin Garvey did many of these after her mom died of breast cancer in June of 2008, the summer after Caitlin's freshman year of college. In the months and early years of grief, Caitlin struggled with depression and anxiety. In her junior year of college, she tried to take her own life and was admitted for psychiatric treatment. Many years later, Caitlin's grief spurred her to interview a series of people who were involved with her mother's illness and care. She talked with her mother's hairstylist, estate planner, priest, funeral director, and a hospice nurse. Turns out the hospice nurse never knew Caitlin's mom, but thought she did. These interviews, woven with Caitlin's memories and reflections, became her recently published book, The Morning Report. In our conversation, Caitlin and I talk about the role grief had and continues to play in her life, the regret she has over not coming out to her mom about her sexuality, how the interviews she did affected her, and what it was like to finish and publish a book that was so closely tied to her mom and her grief. Okay, Here's my interview with Caitlin Garvey, author of The Morning Report. Caitlin, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for being part of Grief Out Loud. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to it too. Um, You know, we're talking, it's like less than two weeks since Mother's Day happened, even though that feels at this point like four months ago. (laughs) And just wondering, you've been through a number of Mother's Day weekends since your mom died. Mm -hmm. And what was this year like for you? How did you spend the day? Um, so my mom's birthday too is May 13th. Um, so they're always kind of, some days they're on the same day. It's always kind of like a double whammy. (laughs) Um, but basically I think now it's been almost, it's been 13 years, um, after since she's, since she died. So, um, I think a little part of me feels like it's easier 
than it was for me, at least the first few years in the sense that like, I don't feel particularly different from every other day. I think in the last few years, I've used it more as a chance to reflect and celebrate. And this year I just to kind of calm down. I just took a bath and looked at old pictures of my mom. Um, and that comforted me and made me feel calm. And I also called my grandma, my mom's mom. She's still alive. She's 98. And so it's nice to connect with her on that day too. And I got, I actually got married in October, 2020. So this was the first year I had a mother-in-law and I ate uh, dinner with her and um, my wife's family. So it was nice. So some pretty big shifts over the last 13 years. And what do you remember about the first one, if anything? I remember, I, I mean, I used to hold, I used to place so much meaning and emphasis on that day, um, like anniversaries too. Even June 8th is the day she died. And I, I used to just like, I don't know, I guess I used to feel like it was all consuming. Like my body felt more tired on those days. I felt like I had more brain fog. I also just kind of felt distant from myself as in like, I'm maybe feeling just this emotion so much that I'm not in tune with other aspects of myself. And so I remember it just being like very vivid and just like kind of a slap in the face um, anniversaries because it's just like, oh, you're forced to kind of relive this memory. But I think since I've processed my memories in a different way, I'm able to see myself independently of, or just as an independent person on those anniversaries when when I wasn't before. Speaking of memories, is, is there a particular memory of your mom that's been coming to your mind lately? Yeah, um, I'm, I've been having a lot of memories around music lately, just even little like stupid songs that like she used to make mix CDs for me when whenever I had like a swim meet or some big event. Um, and <laughs> she always put black eyed peas on the, on the mix CD. <laughs> um, and so when things like that and whenever we had like huge I don't know, whenever, whenever my sisters or I had um, some big event, uh, we would listen to the song Everything's Coming Up Roses from Gypsy to kind of like psych us up, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think a, a lot of music memories have, have been coming back to me lately, which actually, I don't know, I feel like I have more energy when I think about those. I feel like I'm able to kind of connect with my sisters more with music that way too. So those I, I see as very positive, welcomed memories. Yeah, it's always interesting the different roadways into our memories over time in grief, that it could be sites or locations or music or smells. And it sounds like right now you've been on the, the music highway. Yeah, bit. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then with your book, which we're here to talk about as well, The Morning Report, you went through a very deliberate series of interviews with people who were close with your mom and, and directly involved with her illness or her death or her burial. And how did you decide to do that? Like, what was the inspiration to do that? Yeah. So I knew I wanted to write about my mom in some form. Actually, only really, I only really took my, started to take myself seriously as a writer when I wrote an essay about my mom 
I, I tried different entry points into, into figuring out what I wanted to write about, but everything felt so incomplete. And I only had my version of events, which, you know, she died when I was 18. So we didn't have an adult relationship really. Um, and I didn't really know her on, I think a level that I would have gotten to know her now, obviously. So, yeah, I feel like my memories are so connected to an emotional state and also like surroundings. So I knew that I wanted to return to the moments around her death so that I could not just remember more, but also just see if I could get other people's perspectives on grief and understand who she was to them as well. I still love when like people in the Oak Park community tell me uh, memories they have of my mom, even if they're little ones. Um, It just brings me closer to her um, and gets me to see, allows me to see a side of her that I wasn't privy to. Also, I'm in general pretty shy and anxious. Um, So I hoped interviewing people, especially going back to the community that I grew up in, would kind of allow me to express myself, assert my own voice. And even just like communicate the thought of like communicating with people um, who had not a shared experience, but a similar one I thought could be healing in the way that group therapy is. And, and how did the process, the reality of the process compare to maybe what you were envisioning or imagining it would be like <laughs> to do these interviews? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> it's a kind of embarrassing to me now, like to think back on how much hope I put on the the process as a whole to kind of quote unquote heal me in some way um I was feeling at that time so I wrote the book maybe four or five years ago I started writing it at that time I was just feeling very lost career-wise I just I don't know I just thought I need to get this out I need to tell my mom's story and and incorporate some of her journals into it too but (laughs) I I think I had just kind of really unrealistic expectations for what the process was going to be like, which is weird because I'm not really an optimist, but for this, I was like, you know, if I do this and I was just like so focused on this that I couldn't see anything else. Um, But the process was difficult, um, you know, not just because I'm anxious, but also because people in general are kind of uncomfortable talking about death. And even people that I, I knew growing up. And at the end of it, I sort of felt like I had a this whole kind of mess of information. And it was sort of a puzzle to figure out what themes were overlapping and how I could order it. But yeah, I remember during it thinking like, this isn't making me feel better at all. Like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> like, I created the, like the example from Kisa uh, in the uh, Buddhist parable of the mustard seed who goes to collect or the Buddha tells her, can you go to a home and, and try to collect a seed of someone who's who isn't suffering from grief? And she she comes back empty handed. That was kind of the spark for me. Like, oh, maybe I'll just go to people in this way. But yeah, it it just felt like something that I like set myself up for failure, which I don't see as now, but at that time I did. It it seems like you kind of got hooked by what we all get hooked by when we are socialized into thinking that grief has an endpoint or grief can be neat and tidy. And if I just do these steps, what, even if it's not you know, the more famous stages of grief, but the steps of this process and these interviews and write this book, I will get to this end point and I will be (laughs) transformed. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was, yeah, it just, it, it totally sets you up for failure. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, I mean, then you have to kind of see what you have at the end of that. And I realized I did have a lot of, a lot more stories about my mom than I would have had if, um, I, ne- if I never did it. I'm glad that I, I, f- I saw it through for myself and for my mom, um, for my mom, because her, I published some of her journals in there. So, and at one point she wanted to be a writer. So I feel like there was this kind of like drive for me to do this for her. And I was, again, wasn't seeing myself maybe as independent, like a a writer independent of writing about her. I mean, my experience as a reader was getting to know you, getting to know your mom and also getting to know your mom, like your book conveys elements of her personality through the journaling and through the stories that I felt like I got to know two people, her and you at the end of the book. I'm glad you, you, I'm glad you said that because it is, I think really hard to describe a person with so many stories. Um, if somebody asked me like, what is your mom? Like, I can't just immediately give an answer in like adjectives or something. Cause it feels so constraining, but yeah. So it's hard to pick the stories that best reflect her. And I didn't want to paint us both in like a fake positive light, even though most people, when they die, it's like, you can, you can only refer to them as a saint from then on. But yeah, especially with my own depression, I, I just wanted to kind of show like the mess of it because I think that was important for me to like, just acknowledge to myself, honestly. Of all the interviews you did, which one, and this might be impossible to answer, so it's okay Mm -hmm. if you can't, but which one was the most surprising to you? I'm going to say the hospice nurse because I surprised myself. So the background to this story is that, so I go into the interview thinking that maybe she's a nurse who um, took care of my mom. Turns out that's not the case, but she didn't realize it. Um, So she's telling me about like a Denise Garvey who she's telling me all these facts about my life that aren't actually facts about my life. And I think what surprised me most is that I went along with it. Um, I, at the same time, felt like I could connect with her, even though we didn't have this shared experience, but we had this fake shared experience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think the most surprising part of that was realizing the part about myself that I'm, you know, not particularly pleased with, which is that like I'm a, a people pleaser in some ways to the extent where I'll let somebody tell me like how my life was um, and not just speak up and say this, you have these details wrong. And, but it also just felt like that would be very emotional for her, for me to say that she had it wrong. So anyway, I, I feel that taught me a lot about how people relate to each other. And I just, it, it was totally unexpected. As you're talking about it now, I hadn't really thought about this when I was reading that section of your book, but in listening to you talk now, I think about how often people in grief run into circumstances and people and expectations for what their grief is supposed to look like or how they should be feeling and how hard it is to find your voice in your own grief to be like, no, that's not true for me. No, that's not my experience. No, that's not what our relationship was like. And and that experience with the hospice nurse, it seems like such a representation of that, of where in the middle of it, it's so hard to just speak up and be like, that's not actually my mom. Right. <laughs> I didn't live in that house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, it, it's, 
and and you want to be gentle because they're coming from like they did she did have a patient maybe not named Denise Garvey but obviously that died from breast cancer and and you know I it's although it's not maybe the same sort of grief she has to deal with death every day in her life so I just felt like I needed to there was a line I couldn't cross almost another part of your book that really stood out to me is you talked about when you were in the last year of your mom's life, you know, that you were in college and one of the conversations you really wanted to have with her was to come out to her Mm -hmm. to say, you know, I'm not straight. And you ended up not having that conversation with her before she died. And, And now this last October, you and your wife got married and just wondering, have you thought through what, how that conversation might have gone if you had had it with your mom? Yeah, I thought through it a lot. Um, and it's one thing I, I do regret not telling her. Um, but I, I think it would have gone well. Our family, I have a gay cousin and our family is in general, pretty accepting. I also, I was thinking about this and I also find it hard to believe that she didn't actually know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) because, I I was hanging out with this person who I would eventually date um, after she died. Um, But also there was this one time I I was going into her room and she, she had on the L word. Um, (laughs) And it's like, unless you're watching that for yourself, like, I think you're, you're, you're watching that for some sort of common bond. Like she knew I was going to be hanging out with her for a little bit, little things like that. Um, And she knew me very well. Like there's, there was, again, she died when I was 18. And when you're, 18, there's not much you can hide when you're living in your parents' house. There's not much you can hide from them in my experience. So yeah, I think the hard part for me now is, I don't know, but I still feel like I need her affirmation for some reason, Um, even though I'm very proud of myself and content and happy in my sexuality and, and my, like the way I've figured it out. But I think at that time, it felt incredibly selfish. (laughs) Like I'm sitting here next to her hospice bed, she's dying. And I'm so nervous to tell her that I might like girls. (laughs) It just like, it puts everything into perspective. Like it just felt like who cares, you know, it just, it's incredibly selfish. And that's just how I was feeling at the time. But I do, I do wish she knew that part of my life because it is a a big part. And what was it like to, you know, meet your now wife, to fall in love, to decide to get married, to go through that experience without your mom? That's an interesting question because my wife and I technically met when we were like 15. We went to the same high school, um, but uh, neither of us were out at that time or were even aware of our sexuality, I don't think. Um, And then we didn't get together till much later, but at the time, (laughs) so my wife and I played in the same band and orchestra. Um, we both played trumpet and we were like the only two female trumpet players in the, um, and there was like this thing, like if you, um, are a female trumpet player, you're probably gay. Um, (laughs) but anyway, I remember my mom, like my wife is an excellent trumpet player, much better than I am. And my mom would always say like, why don't you invite her over like to play duets or something? Um, so I think it's, it's bittersweet that they never actually met because we were just acquaintances at the time. Um, so I wouldn't have invited her over. It feels hard that my mom's not privy to it or can't observe it in a real way. Like 
maybe in a spiritual way. I don't know, but um, that the part is hard. Yeah. So Caitlin, earlier you talked about, you know, the, the hope and the optimism you have that doing these interviews with your mom's hairdresser and the hospice nurse and the, the priest that was in charge of her funeral, the hope that like that might fix it or fix the grief or, you know, be this um, healing transformational experience. But the reality was that the, those interviews really took, uh, they negatively affected your mental health. And I just wonder what you learned about your grief through that process. Great question. I think, again, like we were talking about earlier with like stages and, and like a journey, people always want to like try to measure it in some way, I think, um, because it's so abstract. But for me, I think I experience grief more faintly um, than I used to. So, okay. So my mom died in June, 2008. And then in August of, so like a few months later, I went back to college for the start of my sophomore year. Um, and I wasn't processing much and I wasn't able to, like, I was totally consumed by grief. Like I wasn't going to class. I just stared at pictures of her all day. Pretty much. I had this really emo blog (laughs) where I wrote about her and about memories I had and, And the rest of the time I was like sleeping for long hours of the day. I was basically like my body and mind were just totally consumed by it. And this is what I've talked about a little bit earlier where you just don't even really feel like a person. You just feel, um, at least that was my experience. Um, and I think it served at that time and almost still does, um, for me as like a veil because it allows me to not be entirely myself. But now I think of it as something fainter, like even if it impedes my day or I feel particularly worn down or tired right now, I'm still able to to set goals. And even though the process to achieve them might be really slow um, and difficult because of my depression and grief, um, I can work in some way to achieve them and I can see myself independent of um, my relationship with my mom and the, my relationship with gr- the grief of my mom. Looking back to you to being a sophomore in college and in the next few years after that, do you have a sense, and you may not know, of like what you needed from yourself, from your family, from administrators and professors at college? Like, was there anything that you think looking back might have been a better help or support for you during that time? I remember there was when I went back maybe within like the first month. And I think my dad had, had orchestrated this, but I don't know how else it would have happened. But basically I went to this group for um, people who were my age or, you know, in college at Notre Dame who were grieving. Um, And there was like, it was run by like these two nuns and um, there are a couple other people there. And I just felt like, not only did I not want to share, I like, I just felt like it was too soon for me in every aspect of it. Like, I, I don't think I was even fully accepting, um, what was happening. And I was like, well, I've, I have, um, access to alcohol now, so (laughs) I can figure everything out by myself and through vodka. I think I was too, it's like, I hated myself, but I was also like, I had a superiority complex. (laughs) So I think I was too, like, in my own head to accept, to have accepted anyone else's help at that time. So yes, probably 
I did need somebody there to kind of just check in, but I still don't think that would have changed much for me in the process. Like I did have people who were supporting me and great, like a group of uh, three really good friends. um, And we lived in a quad together and I had the support, but I just didn't feel like I was ready to use it. And listeners, just to be clear, Caitlin is not advocating uh, vodka as the good no. option over the grief support group. <laughs> no, uh, to clarify, I was 18 years old or 19. <laughs> we we do not use it as a coping mechanism. <laughs> well, I appreciate you talking about it in that in that way, Caitlin, because I think sometimes it can be easy to fall into the idea that there's more to do as family, as friends. It, it's maybe our fault that we didn't do enough to support or save this person. And I think there's always more we could be doing to show up in different ways and better understand the person we're trying to support. But I also appreciate that sense of like, I was in a place where I couldn't even take that in. Like I was still just processing that my mom had even died. I was not ready to sit in a circle with these two (laughs) nuns and these other sad people and hear their (laughs) stories. And I wasn't in a place to really take in the worthiness of myself that I deserve the support. So yeah, I just mm-hmm. appreciate that. I don't know if anyone's ever put it into quite those words before. Yeah, I think it, and there, you can just carry so much guilt from that. Like I, like even when my dad read my book, I feel like it's hard for him to talk about now because he just feels guilty that maybe he wasn't there or, you know, his lack of communication led to like me trying to take my own life, which couldn't be farther from the case. Um, I, I felt isolated, but it wasn't because people weren't there. Caitlin, have you thought at all about what your mom, you mentioned that your dad reading the book and and kind of what that brought up for him. Have Mm -hmm. have you thought at all about what your mom would say or think about this endeavor that you embarked on to interview people about her death and to, to put your grief into words and to go public with it in this way? I think she would think it was crazy. <laughs> um, I think um, she's a she's a very private person. So the idea of like kind of airing our grievances and talking to people, the reason I I was talking to them like ten years after my mom died is because we never nobody was ever talking about it around me at the time. Um, so um, I think she would be <laughs> shocked probably. But that aside, I think she would be proud of me and recognize it as you know, a goal that I have accomplished and, and I'm not like painting her as a demon. So I think she would understand her portrayal and the way that my family does, uh, for, for themselves in the book. Uh, she would have a lot of edits, but um, (laughs) yeah, she actually, yeah, she would have changed the entire thing, but yeah, I think ultimately, despite the initial shock of it being public, she would be, she would be proud of it. Speaking about edits, uh, you know, the end of your book, I was really interested in and fascinated by because I think there might be some pressure for someone like yourself who goes on this um, journey to Mm -hmm. interview people and excavate your grief. And then you're writing a book and you always got to write a conclusion. You got to like wrap it up at the end and there can be this expectation that it's going to be neat and tidy. Mm -hmm. Um, And you didn't write that conclusion. You wrote like it's mixed. And I just wonder what was that like for you to sit with having to, how do I end this book? Yeah, I thought about it a lot and I changed the ending a lot, (laughs) but I wanted to just be honest about the weight of it. Like I, I've read 
too many books where it's not like that. And I don't feel comforted at the end. I feel like maybe something's wrong with me. Um, and so I felt like I really wanted to, um, you know, be honest that like, you can try to go on a journey if you'd like, <laughs> but it's not a cure-all or, um, and you can't go into things expecting anything to be a cure-all because that's, things are not like that. I think for me, accepting that um, was hard, but I kind of accepted that before I even started writing. Like I, I say I have, I had high expectations of the interviews, but I was still like very depressed and had like a kind of a pessimistic world worldview prior to when I was writing. I've always loved that quote by that quote from the hours by Michael Cunningham that I have in the beginning of my book, which is basically like, we kind of go through life um, and some die through these means, but there's like a, a small moment of complete joy. Um, so I, I kind of had that mindset going into it. It was hard to not just accept that, but accept for me that the project was over. Like I, again, like, like I said, I, I was so, I don't know, like not seeing myself as independent of it. Again, I, I thought this was something for me and this is something for my mom. I thought I didn't have a purpose when it was all over. I actually remember this is awful, but I remember telling my wife that I was thinking about killing myself after I finished the book because it felt like my one purpose. Um, and then that was over, or at least that's the emphasis I placed on it. Like, this is the thing I have to do with my life. I figured it out and now I did it. So what, what else? I'm really proud to say that I'm not in that headspace anymore. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I think there was this kind of like grieving of expectations that felt totally different to me. Um, caused me to have even more fatigue during the day. Um, for the last three years, I've had really awful chronic fatigue to the point where, you know, I maybe am awake just a few hours of the day. Um, so I think it, it impacted my mind and body in a different way and made me think about just the expectations I have of myself and kind of brought me back to that mindset, to be honest, when I was 20 and thinking about committing suicide as well, it was like, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know, you know, where I fit into this world. I feel kind of like an odd ball. <laughs> um, I, again, I'm, I'm past that, but that was definitely something that when I, I remember writing the last chapter, I was just like, oh shit, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do now? I, I just don't know. And I'm so lost, but now I'm viewing myself as an, uh, an independent, a writer independent of the subject material. And I think that's, that's helped. I mean, in no sense, it's another ending. It's another loss. It's another grief of exactly. this, this purpose, this process, this way of connecting to your mom and bringing your mom to the world. And then, and just the, I just think about the amount of energy and cognitive capacity it takes to write a book. Mm -hmm. So it's like a mm -hmm. place to focus. And then if you don't have that outlet anymore, where do you go with that? And I know you mentioned that, you know, in the months since the book has come out or since the book, since you finished writing the book that, you know, your mindset has changed. And what has it been like for you since October when the book was published? Um, I mean, it's been hard. I, I, I think, um, the other part of it, 
was that I was, I feel like I haven't written enough about my mom. Like I, it was, it was so constraining. Like I had this formula that, that like, I'm like, oh man, I forgot all these other stories or there are other conclusions I would have come to now. Maybe, um, I think I honestly, I, I wrote the book. I said like maybe like four or five years ago and I would come to a lot of different conclusions now. Um, <laughs> read my book. I, I don't stand by it anymore. But, <laughs> um, no, but I think, I, I think I just would have written it differently and that just because of age or think, and just like reflecting on it longer as you, as each day passes. So, yeah, I think I, I had to see it as like a, you don't have to stop writing about your mom. Like this isn't it. Even there are some art artists who like return to the same subject matter over and over again. Like, I don't remember his name, but basically he wrote about grief and then his perspective 10 years later from like the same, basically it was a, a sequel to that book, but like a different perspective. I don't think I'll do that, but it just, I was so worried about it being the only thing left of me and my mom. Um, that was really hard to kind of deal with. Since then, it's only honestly been recently where I felt passionate and excited about a project unrelated to my mom. Um, I'm looking forward to new projects, which is great. But I think for a while, it was just a lack of energy and a lack of drive because I, I felt like there was nothing to, to drive to. Um, it, it's, it's gotten better, I would say, the last few months, but it, it was hard, yeah. I appreciate the idea that even when we write it down and publish it, our grief is not static and our relationship to that grief is not static. It continues to evolve and change. And, you know, with this sort of, in this moment, a little bit more renewed interest and excitement for other projects, for listeners who want to find The Morning Report, your book that we're talking about, or keep up with you and your other projects, like what's the best way for people to connect with you? Um, they can go to my personal website. It's caitlinhogangarvey.com. And if you want to buy the book, I would go buy it through Homebound Publications website. It's also available in an Amazon and all those places. Um, but also uh, I have Facebook and Instagram, Caitlin Garvey. <laughs> Great. And listeners, as always, I'll put those links in the show notes so you can find them there. Um, but if you're not one who goes to the show notes again, it's just caitlinhogangarvey.com. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Well, Caitlin, I'm just really grateful for your work, grateful for your book, grateful for all that it's taken for you to be here, um, <laughs> doing this interview, but just here on the planet, um, and continuing <laughs> to explore your craft and your grief. And yeah, just thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And listeners out there, I sound like a broken record, but thank you so much for being part of our community. The show wouldn't mean what it does if you weren't out there tuning in, sharing episodes with people that you know might be helped or supported by the show, and also emailing me and telling me what the show means to you. If you um, would like to, I'd love to hear from you. My email is griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And our website is where you can go to find all of our past episodes as well as other Dougie Center resources. And that is also D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. So thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.